Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this lovely evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? Uh, I'm good. In keeping with the theme of tonight's film, I am drinking a very reddish, well, slightly purple, but red glass wine. Um, although it's a much less lovely and elegant name than everything in Allerdale Hall and Crimson Peak and Lady Edith Sharp. And here I am with my glass of plunger head zinfandel so (laughs) (laughs) well as long as it's not poisoned uh spoilers everybody david you're not drinking anything poisoned i would hope david luzader everybody yeah no but i am keeping in tradition with uh with this tonight's movie as well i just met a man who doesn't have a lot of money to his name but um oh he just got those piercing eyes that just makes Mm -hmm. me want to leave my entire life behind and go live with him in his uh, crumbling estate. It happens. beyond crumbling with the giant hole in the roof. It's several holes in the roof. It's not just <laughs> yeah. the one. Yeah, in it's got its own atrium. Parts of, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that house. Yeah, we watched Crimson Peak, everybody. It was a Guillermo del Toro film from 2015. It was a future classic pick from myself. But before we fully introduce that i want to throw along next week's movie so you can follow along if you would like to david next week is around the world it is a pick for an international film and it's your time to pick so what are we watching yes so i typically with around the world pick a lot of uh, asian cinema um and i have a couple of great picks that i wanted to keep doing with that but since nicole did train to busan last time i thought hey i should maybe branch out to some other parts of the world uh, so I had a couple of ideas and I settled on this and, you know, for around the world, we've all had our movies. Well, you two have had your movies so far that it's like, well, it's, it's around the world, but you know, technically blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm kind of pulling that this week though. I still stand by it's a foreign film. Uh, it is the third and final installment in the dollars trilogy movie came out in 1966 the good the bad and the ugly it is a spaghetti western it was directed by an italian director filmed entirely in italy in both italian and english uh because clint eastwood would not speak italian yeah i was about Uh, to say like what is the italian version uh it's basically everybody else and then clint eastwood (laughs) just growling you can growl in italian yeah, uh, but yes, it is uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly is what we will be discussing. Since you know, I've already set the precedent of Western films. Let's keep on that train. I'm excited, and I have a I have a confession to make in that case, which is I have never seen a Clint East Clint East Clint Eastwood. It's been a long day, guys. Uh, Western <laughs> movie. I've never seen one. Of them. I um, I I've had seen a feeling, Harry, but that's as far back as I go with him. You've yeah, never it's seen basically a Western. No, oh. I I had a feeling that you hadn't seen this, and I'm like, well, we already, you know, we showed Brett that wonderful, uh, the wonderful uh, Magnificent Seven, so he should oh, see another classic, it. another classic Western in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. 
right. kill two in. birds with one stone by calling it a foreign film. <laughs> yes, which it could be argued, and we're not the first podcast or blog to discuss it as foreign cinema, so there is precedent. Well, yes, it's, it's made by a foreign director in a foreign land. Uh-huh. It just happens to be entirely in English and set distributed. in the American West. But <laughs> distributed, yeah, distributed to American audiences. Right. Hey, hey, it says the Dollar Tril- Trilogy is an Italian film series on Google. See, so we're going to let it run. We're good. We're going to let it run. All right, well, join us next week then for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. This week, though, we are jumping way forward from that to 2015, just a couple short years ago, when Guillermo del Toro released a film called Crimson Peak. In the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love for her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, she has swept away to a house that breathes, bleeds, and remembers. Uh, this was my pick for a future classic that has to be a film that has come out in the last 10 years that we deem will be a classic of cinema in some capacity moving forward. I think that this is a, um, I definitely think there's some caveats. This is not a perfect film. It, it has like a 70-ish in Rotten Tomatoes, and that's probably fair. Uh, it, there's a lot of issues I do have with this movie. But, you know, close Word document, open new Word document, but this is a great <laughs> movie that is beautifully shot it is eye candy through and through in terms of cinematography and production design i think that this has classic written all over it and i also think it's a kind of movie where with someone like guillermo del toro having such a prolific and celebrated career that is only growing in all sorts of exciting new directions i think that this is like that that little movie in the center that no one saw and no one cared about but you totally should because if you like his other stuff this is a thousand percent up your alley and it's a wonderful culmination of victorian horror drama incest uh (laughs) boy the incest yeah yeah yeah. we're gonna we're gonna have to get into that maybe not that last one but the rest absolutely (laughs) oh no i have some thoughts about that that i want to share yeah yeah i'm just saying that's maybe not a wonderful part of it but it is it is such a beautiful movie and that's what i just can't get over from the way it's written to the way it's filmed I just want to watch this movie all day. Uh, and that's what I love about it. And I think that is why in some aspects, this will go certainly among Gerald del Toro's best work in those facets. So I'm laying it onto the, onto the panel though, to decide later in the show, but let's break it down. Nicole, you had seen this before. You actually own it, correct? I do in fact own it on Blu-ray and I had seen it in the theater. Okay, right on. And David, this was new to you. Yeah, this was a, oh man, I really got to go see that movie while it's in theaters. And what do you mean? Wait, what? What? It's out of theaters? Okay, well, um, I'll see it someday. Yeah, I think that's what everyone did. And then no one saw it. Uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> this was just, not, you know, it, it, it wasn't not, not nobody successful. saw it. Yeah, well, it was, it was not successful enough for Hollywood. No, no. Like this is this is one of those movies where especially if you look at the marketing materials for it and the way they did the ads, it kind of came off as like Guillermo del Toro's doing a horror movie and you should see it and it's artsy. And um which yeah, I what, almost don't even think it's a horror movie. I that's something I want to throw out there a little bit later, but I think if you go in this expecting to be scared, I just don't know if it's going to do it for you. Yeah, it, it came at a very interesting point because it's a post-Pacific Rim, um, 
which got sort of like, I don't know, a tepid response, but, was, but I love that movie and we'll get into that another point, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, but you also have, you know, you have Tom Hiddleston shortly in the middle mm. of all the Marvel stuff. And you have Jessica Chastain, who was very popular at that time as well. Like this had the mixing of like, it should have been successful. Uh, it just, I guess, was just weird enough to not be. It has Tom Hiddleston's butt. It, it does. does. It does have it does his have butt. butt. It almost had Cumberbutt. Uh, oh, yes. Benedict um, Cumberbatch was supposed to be the role of Thomas Sharp. How, yes, I, how would that have worked for you guys? I don't know. And also, we ought to throw in that um, before Jessica Chastain was cast, before, sorry, oh, before yep. Mia Wasikowska was cast, uh, Emma Stone was originally cast as Edith. Uh, I think, I think, uh, yes, I also saw that. I think, uh, Mia Waskowski probably did a better job in this role than I think, uh, Emma Stone could have. Oh, hundred percent. That being said, I love Emma Stone. She's wonderful in the favorite favorite is a great movie. I don't think this is a role for her. However, I think Benedict Cumberbatch could have gotten a little bit weirder than Tom Hiddleston (laughs) in the, in the right ways for this role (laughs) on the flip side of that though. Benedict Cumberbatch can always get weirder. He yeah. can out weird just about anybody. But at the but same time, in it's the like right way not... is the question. Right. Because I'm wondering whenever I think of weird Cumberbatch, it's too easy for me to be like, oh, but it's Benedict Cumberbatch. Like he's not as suave to me as, uh, you know, he's just not as like completely suave and like smooth and quite sophisticated as like Tom Hiddleston is to me sometimes um i think they're both wonderful actors but i think almost the fact that tom hiddleston is more reserved in more aspects than i think Cumberbatch would have been i mm-hmm. think it makes him more of a brooding character and uh he is a very mysterious character in this movie that has a lot of very weird motivations that unravel in weird ways uh because what happens in this movie for those who have not seen it and go check it out if you haven't is he comes to america this man uh thomas sharp because he is selling essentially a giant clay digging machine that digs up this scary red clay that his family has over, uh, over mined over the course of many years. And now it's so difficult to mine that they have to go deeper into the ground and they don't have the technology to do that. So he's like half inventor, half like um, starry eyed dreamer as uh, Edith would like to believe in the beginning of this movie. And uh, she is the daughter of a uh, very successful man that tries uh well, rather that uh, Tom Hiddleston tries to get to invest in this machine. Yeah, he's that the. Work out, she, she's the daughter of uh, of Jim Beaver, who plays Bobby on uh, on Supernatural. So, you know, for you tump for your Super Hulock fans out there who are disappointed we didn't get our Cumberbatch, you at least got your your Supernatural in there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, this movie is forty five minutes of setup. I do want to mention that it is a, almost an hour before we get to the house. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're still, oh, we're just now starting this stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. Not to, say that, not to say that it's bad. Not to say that I felt like it was fully dragging its feet, but it did like take, and, like, I thought this took, I thought this movie started with like her coming to the house and it going from there. Nope. No. You don't see that house for a very long time. Which I think lends 
uh, I think there's two parts of it, right? Like the, 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 the natural response to that is this is way too long of a buildup. And then that's a fair analysis for people who do think that of this movie. I think the other side of it is that we get to see a little bit more of characters like her father, you know, Carter Cushing, like um, Alan McMichael, the man that is inevitably going to save her toward the end of this movie, the doctor. And I think that those relationships and building up like what she's leaving behind makes the, uh, the fall of showing up at this estate in England and having it just be decrepit and destroyed and stuff's falling through the roof and the house is sinking into these mines. I almost feel like it makes it just weigh on you so much more because you know what she's coming from. Uh, I think a bit. Yeah. Um, but I think like you still could have maybe shortened it down to like 20 minutes. Maybe (laughs) I don't know. I also don't, a hundred percent by that Tom Hiddleston was in love with her, but we don't have to get to that right now. We can uh, get to that later. You didn't like the 45 minutes of like dancing and, um, you know, rhapsodizing about Ford cars, like the the model T I did. did. Oh, I did. did. Not so much the car rhapsodizing, but (laughs) I actually ballroom dancing and stuff. I appreciated the, the long, slow setup. Um, because you really get to know Edith as a character, you get to see uh, why she falls in love with Thomas Sharp, what it is about him that attracts her to him. Um, you get to have some suspicions, but think maybe things might be okay. But you know, this is this is a gothic novel put on yes. screen pure and simple and gothic novels did this they had long build-ups where you got to meet everybody and you got to learn about the the heroine's character and what made her strong and where her weaknesses were and why she falls in love with the guy and then things slowly start coming apart yeah um so whether or not and i'll save my full judgment for the end whether or not this movie is a future classic it does pull heavily from the classics. Um, yes. And, and Guillermo del Toro wanted to make this because he felt like a lot of horror movies now are, you know, found footage or they're like B, B movies, essentially. Uh, and he wanted to make something that was very much in line with the classics. He wanted to feel like a throwback, uh, which I think it very much does. Um, 100% it does. And he also used that uh, use the tropes of that time to sort of play around with them and subvert them a little bit to do his own thing, which I think in some places does work rather well. Yeah. The characters even call it out, you know, um, I think it's Edith that says she wants to be like Mary Shelley because she died a widow. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 and if you read Frankenstein, there's a lot of buildup just like this. Um, the, yeah. For me, the biggest call out of a trope and then subversion of it was, ah, I knew you weren't his sister. Nope, I am. <laughs> like, we're giving ourselves the out and we're not taking it. I, I love, I love, and I'm so concerned about so much going on with that. Um, but before we go down that rabbit hole, uh, a couple other things I do want to talk about in regard to the, the gothic nature of this is I also do like, even if it, even if it dabbles in cliche a little bit, the slow unraveling of the motivations of the, of the two the two siblings of Thomas Sharp and his sister. 
um, Lucille because you know there's a scene where they're all in the park together, and then there's this great shot where their their silhouettes are just completely blacked out. It's the only shot of the movie that is in like at, one of the only shots, if not the only shot, that is in like a happy outdoor area, lots of bright lighting, and then it cuts to the shot of of the two siblings talking underneath this tree and they're just completely black silhouettes behind this tree. And they're talking, you know, you picked this girl. This is the girl that we're going to do this with. Lucille says to Thomas. And then later on, you know, obviously we know one of them killed Edith's father and we don't know who. And then all this is like slowly unraveling in a really like weirdly romantic way. Um, and I kind of love that about the buildup of this movie. I think that it, it then pays dividends toward the end of the movie when all these things start, you know, flooding out. Uh, and this movie hits you really hard in the last like 25 minutes of it. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, yeah. uh, and I think Nicole pointed out in our docket that, uh, just when you think it's lush Gothic romance, someone's head gets bashed in a very Del Toro touch. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely a very, uh, <laughs> abrupt moment at which the tone of this movie shifts into a, very gruesome murder. There's some very gruesome deaths on this, in this movie. I should not, throw that out there. Not yeah, even, it was shocking in the theater. Yeah. Oh, I remember it was. Oh, I saw this. My I, I saw this in the theater as well, and uh, on on Halloween night because this this is they put it out in October to try to run on that yeah. high, and uh, it is so uncomfortable because the first time Lucille slams his head down, and this is into a a porcelain sink. You don't see anything and you kind of relax a bit because you're like, oh, cool. It's just going to cut away. Nope. Then she pulls uh, his head back up and keeps slamming. Nope. They show you his face getting bashed in. And this movie does that at other points as well. Later on, people are getting stabbed in the chest or the face. It doesn't, <sighs> it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it as a quick shot. It doesn't do it in a way to like kind of obscure it. It is like it's a steady shot of that part of the body as the object goes into it. And it is hard to watch. The knife to the cheek gets me every time I watch this. Oh movie. yeah. That was. <laughs> Do not yeah, like that. El Toro does not shy away. He doesn't, he doesn't revel in it. You know, it, it never turns pornographic at any point in terms of the violence, but it is, he's just, he's, very steady on it he's just like this is what's happening you need to know how ugly and gruesome this is and how brutal and so you can really feel you know how horrible this is for edith to lose her father in particularly in this way mm -hmm. and uh del toro does that in the other film you know that we've watched of his here on the podcast when david brought parents labyrinth as an around the world pick, there are scenes in that movie, especially when, you know, Captain Vidal is dying and, uh, or not dying, but when he gets hurt several times, like really badly, when he's like, like slashed in the mouth and stuff. Yeah. yeah oh, it just, just lingers slow. She like stabs the stuff into him slowly. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, Oh. And the but, guy's but face gets right. bashed in with the bottle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but Nicole is absolutely right. You know, he doesn't, uh, wander into Tarantino territory. <laughs> Which is no. kind of what I call just the grotesque, you know, gore porn in a way. I do love Tarantino, but yeah, he he doesn't, you know, he, they they don't finish he bashing a face well, and then go call the wolf to help them clean it up. 
Yeah. And there's like, there's something a little bit in, uh, when we watch drive where I feel like drive is kind of a little bit for me goes a little bit far in that direction of like, Oh, look at this horrible violence. Oh, isn't it so horrible to look at all this horrible violence. It's so bloody slow it down so you can really look at it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where this is just, yeah, this is like, Oh, that's horrible violence. And we're not going to linger on it, but we're going to show it to you. And, and they are, you know, I want listeners to understand who haven't seen this movie that the movie is very tactful in the sense that there's maybe three or four scenes in this movie in a two hour film that really stick with you in terms of violence. Uh, and they're always like these intense crimes of passion. It's not just like killing people for the sake of killing people. In fact, we only see like two people die on screen in this movie. Three, three. We see three die on screen in this movie, I believe. So, not a lot. It's not like your. It's not like your typical horror movie where a whole cast is slowly getting killed off, which is, I think, part of one of those tropes that Del Toro was trying to avoid. Um, but one of the tropes I do love that he reverses is the character of Alan. And I want to talk a little bit about Alan. Uh, Alan is played by uh, Char- Charlie Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam. 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 Okay. Okay. And I've no. I noticed him actually from Children of Men. Uh, he was Patrick, but yes. you noticed him from Pacific Rim. Yes, and, and Green uh, Street Hooligans. Okay, and and he's great in this movie. He's, he's one of my favorite characters. And he was, I didn't watch Sons of Anarchy. Uh, yeah, he he's all, all over time. Sons of Anarchy. Oh, the, guy, yeah. the guy's gotten work. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, I, I love him in this movie because the, it's such a trope in so many movies that there's like the well-manicured, successful, good-looking man with the awesome job, and he's tall and blonde and buff. And he's just not the right fit for the beautiful, intelligent woman. She needs to go with the quirky, weird-looking dude that understands her poetry. And this movie plays that card at the beginning. And then as you learn later on that the Sharps are indeed using Edith for her money and are planning to kill her and are trying to kill her, uh, Alan just comes in and saves the day. And I love that he is the reversal of that trope. He is the great... He's every bit the great guy that the movie shows him as at the doesn't save the day though he gets nearly murdered <laughs> well I'm, i mean he, he's a great guy i'm not gonna like he you know he he puts himself in some real danger and and all that but it's like he's he not inadvertently the, saves the day because they would have killed her when she'd fallen off the the, the uh book the banister the, yeah. The, yeah 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 it's it's convenient yes it very much is yeah. but it's like he's not the one that bashes in jessica chastain's head with a shovel yeah, that, that's true. That's very true. But I, I think like the idea of that, like of the two, the, the dichotomy between those two characters is something a lot of movies play with, especially romance movies. And it's nice to see like, no, nah, the creepy weird one actually was bad for her. And this guy was pretty good. <laughs> um, and he's great. It's also like, what kind of doctor is he? Like, he's like an optometrist. He's, he's a doctor. Specialty. But then like, but then like also is apparently her father's physician and he's also qualified to know what's going on with her when he shows up later he's also the world's greatest detective <laughs> yeah yeah he's I, i'm just well, not clear what he does i mean it's kind of i think they're kind of playing with that trope of doctor just being yeah they are. whatever you need it to be in that particular scene yeah exactly <laughs> no i like yeah. you know i like charlie hunnam i know people a lot of people don't like him i really do uh, uh, I like him okay, but his yeah. American accent is terrible. 
I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but the stuff I like him at, I feel like is primarily stuff where it's not really playing into it, except for Pacific Rim, which you just got to lean into whatever's happening on screen. We no are matter. drift compatible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, his, if his American accent is terrible, I wonder how he made it like eight years in Sons of Anarchy, which is I don't know. like the most American thing doused in America. I haven't uh, watched it, so I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to Maybe you think somebody would have told him. <laughs> uh, but I do love that subversion of that trope in some ways. I think his character is an interesting piece of the puzzle, albeit a convenient one, like David yeah, said. Yeah, he's, he's very much built like the, you know, 1980s uh, clean-cut jock who turns out to be a jerk and not the sensitive skinny guy. Right, I mean, that exactly. that they, that trope even shows up in Frozen, Disney's Frozen, where, you know, Hans, the the one of royal blood, who's like, seems like the perfect compatibility when it comes down to it, is like, I don't really love you. I'm going to wait until you're dead and collect your fortune. Or Shrek. <laughs> I was just thinking, I've never seen Frozen, but that kind of sounded like Shrek to me. A hashtag uh, Farquaad did nothing wrong. I don't know what we're I doing. I hope I never see Shrek again. Um, oh shit! Now I said it on the podcast. Uh, well, yeah, no, let's never watch Shrek again. I'm okay with never seeing <laughs> Shrek. Yeah, please don't vote for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Jess, Jessica Ch- Chastain, we're talking a lot about her character Lucille in this, and she's yeah. creepy from minute one, right? Yes. Like she is, she is in this movie, and by that I mean she's playing this any, uh, her role harder than anyone else. She was well, filming two movies at once. While doing this, maybe that's why she goes for it so hard in this movie because she's she's our scenery chewer for this film. Yeah, yeah. which is not something you normally see. First of all, from like the woman in a movie, right. and definitely not from Jessica Chastain. No, she's usually the one who's like she normally plays characters who are always in control, always subdued, um, well, has a plan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I put this in the in the doc as well that she originally uh, that Guillermo del Toro had given her uh, the script after they worked together on Mama and thought that she would play the re- uh, the lead role of Edith. But after reading the script, Jessica Chastain actually wanted to play Lucille, who she thought was more interesting and challenging. And del Toro agreed that she should do it. Yeah, there's a scene in this movie, and, and the rip off the band aid, like you know, these two siblings have been together. Their whole life. Yeah, we, we, have, we haven't, we haven't uh, <laughs> alluded it's all very to that. Game at all. of Thrones, very flowers. Actually, yeah. more flowers in the attic than Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, boy. So, um, the evil bad parents. and Right. The evil bad parents, you know, she kills their mother when they're very young. Their father's this crazy old abusive man that, that we're led to believe. They could have had perfectly fine parents. We don't really know. She's just out to lunch. Um, and uh, she's sleeping with her brother since she's like 12. So, since he was like twelve, yeah, he was, she's older. Yeah, she's, she's years older than him. She's right, a couple years older, and it it seemed like you know when the mother because they said the mother's last words were "you two are monsters" or whatever. It was the implied thing there was that the mom caught them, right? Oh, well, she says think. it. She says that the mother found okay. out about. Them. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, and and what's what's crazy to me is like, uh, there's these scenes in the movie that. Jessica Chastain plays so beautifully where this jealousy of these women, because keep in mind, Edith is not the first. She's like the sixth or seventh. She's the fourth. 
fourth okay. that, we, that we know at about. Least at least the fourth. At least yeah, the fourth. At least yeah. the fourth. Right. Of, of women that, that, you know, Thomas Sharp has gone off to faraway lands and, and wooed them and they all have rich families, but they don't have enough close relatives that'll come looking for them. Like they only have to kill off like one person, like the dad, and then they can take their money and funnel it into their ventures and so on and so forth. Um, and she has these scenes of jealousy, of jealousy with, with Edith, particularly with Edith, because Edith seems to be the only one of these women that actually ended up sleeping with Thomas. And when Edith and Thomas well, go no, off that's to the not post- the case. They find she finds a photo of a woman with a baby. But the baby thing. was not that woman's. Yeah, the, the baby was uh, Lucille's. I mean, Lucille's. I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, Lucille's says in, the, uh, in the kitchen when she's cutting off her hair and organizing the hair that it was her baby and the baby didn't come out quite right. Shocker. Yeah. And it was it was the woman that was in the picture um, tried to save it. Mm-hmm. That's oh, how she put okay. it. Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, Eloda or Elosa. I can't remember the name. Enola. 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 The, the woman from Milan. Yeah. So, so Enola tries to save the baby and this baby ends up going bye-bye because it's got all sorts of stuff wrong with it. Cause well, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's implied that maybe the, they also nixed the baby. Yeah. And, and it was this, you know, incest child that had a lot of issues and, and just because um, your baby has five elbows doesn't mean oh, do no. just because well, they're all webbed into one super toe. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but since it is really implied that you know um, none of them have slept with Thomas besides Edith, that uh, this fit of rage and jealousy that happens with Lucille when Lucille is making something on the stove, grabs the pot off the stove, goes to slam it. And then just like immediately, like in this split second, you see this diversion in her eyes where she notices, oh, I probably shouldn't do this. And then just puts it down and says, oh, sorry. And <laughs> oh, yeah, she's intense. Oh, yeah. And just, she's she's massaging the scrambled eggs or whatever it was. <laughs> Scrapping <laughs> handfuls of them. I can't be alone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, she goes hard. Um, yeah. Do you know who else goes hard in this movie? The ghosts. There's ghosties in this movie, and they're they're made of clay? Question mark. They're clayish ghosts. Covered no. in clay. Yeah. Didn't they they're get part... submerged in the clay? And they're like slimy. Yeah. Well, but they're, they're, not, they're, they're not like your spe- your spectral ghosts per se. Except but there's the other. End. But there's other ghosts. Yeah, I didn't quite understand what made the ghosts appear in the forms that they do. I think they just appear yeah. the way that they are their physical remains are now because Edith's mother always appears in the black dress mm-hmm. and the, you know, uh, lady, uh, lady sharp Nola. and lady. like a, the two ghosts, two ghosts, at least in Crimson Peak. Um, there's, I mean, she both, sees, yeah, she sees they're both Nola drenched and in red and they, they're like just rib cages and a head and stretched out skin in one case. And, you know, this red skeleton in the other. And it's because they're in the vats down in the basement. They're, mm-hmm. they're covered in the liquid red clay. Right. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think that makes the most sense. And I, I think, I mean, frankly, it was just a really cool aesthetic thing to make Guillermo del Toro oh, sure. make. It was, it was to let Guillermo del Toro make Doug Jones walk in weird ways. Uh, because by the way, Doug Jones is in this. Of course he is. Um, <laughs> you know, Doug Jones, the wonderful, um, what do you even call I mean, he's an actor, obviously. But what do you, motion uh, caption? He's not motion caption though. 
No, he's, was. he's just, no, he no. Was. He was on set for a number of these. Like they put a lot of work into the physical effects, oh, and yeah, they they did some. They did touching up with computers, but they uh, also wanted to be as practical as possible. Right. I love it, and and I mean, he, he's the he's go-to. just primarily known for his physical performances mm-hmm. more than right. his actual dramatic dramatic verbal skills. Right. Say. Oh, he's lovely on the new Star Trek. But yeah, uh, he's he's in this in as several of the ghosts, and the ghosts. Like, I, I guess what I find very interesting about them is at what point did you guys realize? And I'll actually pose this maybe even more toward David as someone who just saw this movie for the first time. When did you realize the ghosts were not haunting her? They were helping her. Um, I mean, like it. I feel like it came fairly early, just because they're not. They weren't really doing anything to her. Um. They were spooking her though. Like, it was yeah, scary. yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess in a sense, it did feel like for a while they were haunting her until they were like they were pointing at things, or <laughs> like, or when she requested, you know, like, hey, let me feel your hand or whatever. Like, they were responding to that request and trying to guide her a little bit. I guess it, it didn't ever really feel like they were full on antagonizing her. I mean, her mother was warning her. She just happened to be a terrifying hell beast when she was doing it, <laughs> which really doesn't make your message come across when you're like grabbing your child and like screaming in their ear. Well, I mean, at first she was very gentle in her approach. You know, she just put her hand, the, the mother's ghost puts her hand on her very wasted black skeletal hand on Edith's arm and says, Beware of Crimson Peak. You know, they're all warning her none of them are actively trying to hurt her Mm -hmm. yeah and it seems to me like the ghosts around crimson peak are um it seems to me like they're almost fighting to appear which is why sometimes their appearances are so jarring like they come out of the floor and they come out of like walls and stuff i don't think i think that the impression i always got yeah they 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 gotta work to like uh, to manifest themselves and only for very short periods of time, uh, they, they're always disappearing. And I think it is just like, just to push her enough in the right direction. And David, like, was right. Like, yes, there's points toward the end of the movie where Enola is quite literally pointing to tell Edith to go see these two siblings together and figure out what's going on. But then there's one where they like purposely scare her down a hallway. That way she'll well, open up a door that but, has but, these well, things she, inside of it. When she tries to open the door, it closes it right back up on her. That one I didn't quite get. I don't know if it closed it or if it was like it did make creepy creepy noises. So yeah, it was uh, spooky. <laughs> all all of the uh, ex wives do appear in the movie. Uh, the one crawling along the floor is supposed to be Pamela Upton. That's his first wife. Oh, that's uh, where there's so little of her left. Yeah, and like, well, okay. yeah, um, and there's uh, the second wife with the face that was bashed in uh, was Margaret McDermott. Uh, and then Enola was the the one floating with the baby. Who is the one with the bu- the buggy eyes? The buggy eyes um, is that the, the mom in the bathtub, right? With the yeah, I think so. With the cleaver in her head. Uh, no, there was there was one that was standing in the hallway with the red eyes that that spoke to Edith. The that was also the mom, though. That was after she oh, saw her was in also the bathtub. The yeah, and then she runs away, and the mom reappears. Okay. Um. Yeah, because because also like. You know the the mom who who was killed by her you know kids very young, um, is also warning Edith to stay away from this and to get away, 
And the place is called Crimson Peak, um, for those unaware, because the clay underneath the ground rises up when it snows and the warm turns, clay. Yeah. Warm clay. Yeah. And turns the the snow red. And I'm not sure that's how probably it, so Yeah, I don't how know. It's so hard to mine and yet seeping and up yet under everywhere. The it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> So let's talk about that because it's a wonderful device, even if it's a bit nonsensical, for Guillermo del Toro to just splatter himself all over this movie. And I think that this part of our discussion here is what I think is most classic about this movie for me is the color schemes in this movie and the reds and the greens and the oranges and the way this was shot with an attention to detail of how can we take everything in this scene and just jam-pack this color palette into it in a stunning, stunning way. It is just to me, a breathtaking movie to watch. Oh yeah, it's it's very rich and very beautiful. And the the thing that really impresses me is that it's it's all the look of the movie. If you look at just the outlines, is like based on these old classic black and white movies. You know, it's based on things like you know the old castles you would see in Frankenstein or um, I was thinking particularly of Renoir's uh, La Belle and La Bette, the beauty and the beast in black and white, where there are actual, you know, candle holders sticking out of the wall that are human arms. And they look, it's, you know, you get the feeling when she's walking down these elaborate Gothic halls that any second, something's going to reach out from the wall or come down from the ceiling or, something it feels alive yeah Guillermo del Toro with this eye for color in movies is just fantastic I mean if you look at this movie look and then you look at uh, Shape of Water and they have very specific color palettes they're working from but he weaves them in so it's never in your face uh like you know the, the reds are striking but they're never like so bright that it's like look it's red it's red uh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a red just, door, guys. Look, it's red. Right. Yeah. It just it all feels so natural to the world that he's built, like how the blues and the greens work in Shape of Water as well. Um, and I just agree with Nicole, like the way this house, like you feel at any point, like yeah, of course a ghost is going to come out of there. This house is a ghost. And I think part of that is because they built this house. And I that's always astounded me about this they movie. They built it and then tore it down. I know. They tore it down because they needed to put a studio there. But still, uh, the fact that they built this house, and there's a great feature out on this if you own the movie. Nicole's probably actually seen it. Um, <laughs> and they, they go into how they built this house and the inner workings of it. And it was just so over the top. And you could have made the movie without doing that. But the fact that Guillermo del Toro needed to make this house feel lived in and make it feel like a living, breathing entity and, and part of the movie, I think, is what makes it such an astonishingly beautiful backdrop. I, everything from you know the, the ornate library that they have somewhere in the house to the creepy basement to the, to the creepy workshop to the creepy kitchen... There's a lot of really beautifully kind of creepy stuff in this house. And oh, it's yeah. really so lived in. And I think that's just what blows me away is that there's a lot of horror movies, especially if they take place in a creepy house or something like that, that you're just like, oh, yeah, this was built to be a set for a horror movie. Whereas this feels like they found a house that's 300 years old and 
it's amazing they didn't accidentally destroy it while filming this. Right, yeah, and they asked, hey, can we carve a giant hole in the roof and uh, flood your foundation with clay? And they were like, yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> or even better, just like, that's the way it already was, right? Like, that's how this movie makes you feel when you see this house. The yeah. the clay in the foundation, like, they're mining under their house. That house is gonna be eaten by, which I understand is yeah. the symbolism and stuff like that. But, God, this family is stupid. Yeah, I mean, you know, the house will be will be under literally undermined by its own secrets. Aha. Aha. <laughs> yes. Um but yeah, I mean, that's there's so much so much elaborate detail in the costumes and the production design and you know, they designed the the elevator car to look like a Victorian killing jar for butterflies. <laughs> You know, then the butterfly imagery is everywhere down to Edith's clothes, which are either, you know, like butterfly shaped sleeves or there are flowers all over them. Right. Or what have you, you know, they, the color scheme switches on Edith. Edith, when she's in America and with her family, is uh, wears a lot of golds um, and is just sort of this glowing with life. And then she comes to Crimson Peak. And starts wearing more lighter colors and it fades into like creams and then whites. And then she starts looking at really washed out and looking like she looks like a, a ghost. ghost herself. Yeah. Like a ghost. <laughs> yeah. When she lets her hair down, it's kind of like this like creepy Amanda Seyfried vibe she's got going on. Um, yeah. It's horrifying because they're poisoning her. We haven't talked about that. Like yeah. this entire time from day one. They're poisoning her with tea. I, and I love that, like, I, I really like this movie, like, when you, you have scenes of Hiddleston and Chastain together, and they're just, like, very plainly talking about what's going on. It's like, <laughs> they're not like, oh, are they secretly poisoning her? So she's straight up like, I don't want to give her the poison anymore. Or, like, I put the poison on the porridge. So they're just, like, very upfront, like, yeah, we're, we're killing this girl, right? You know? My favorite one is, is in the very beginning when uh, Enola's dog runs up to the house and uh and hiddleston very clearly looks annoyed and then later on when him and his sister are baking up their batch of you know toxic goodies for edith and he says and she's like what happened to that dog you were yeah. supposed to get rid of it and he said i left it outside for weeks I yeah, I I killed it <sighs> she didn't have to kill the dog man i already knew she Why? was evil and I crazy was a dead dog walking the second you were introduced to the dog and she jessica chest you know lucille looks at it with that look on her face and you're just like oh dead dog the dog is another example of the butterfly theme that's a papillon dog and it's papillon is french for butterfly and they're mm, named oh that gosh, for the sort of wing shape of well, their ears yeah they weren't very subtle with the butterfly i think when <laughs> <laughs> no no, uh, no, they what, are, what do the moths eat? Butterflies. Butterfly. I wonder what that <laughs> means. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so the dog, though, does kind of answer in some way one of the questions that David put in the docket, which is, you know, can only Edith see these ghosts? Are they hiding from everyone but her? Um, the dog sees the ghosts. So, I mean, at least the, the dog, dog is getting... The ghosts? Oh, yeah, the dog runs away from the mom yeah. with her. Like, the dog like, sees it, goes like, Whoa, and like runs away. <laughs> So that was my dog impersonation. Well, yeah, but um, but like no no one else sees ghosts, right? Like is it is it just supposed to be her? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, we none of the ghosts appear. I mean, there's only three people in the house, and none of the ghosts appear to the other two, which makes sense because the ghosts were killed by the other two, and they're actually trying to help her. So that makes sense to me. But I mean, I she that, also would see the mother, or the ghost of her mother, several points in her life. Oh no, that's a good point. That's a really good point. You know, I don't know. I at first I was going to posit that maybe it's something to do with the house because in no. the very ending scenes we see the two siblings are back at the house. Yeah, and uh, no, that's the, not true though because the bomb in the, the beginning. Yeah, there is there is a point um, where Jessica Chastain sees Tom Hiddleston's ghost. But I was reading like there was somebody online who's making this big thing like, well, only Edith can see the ghosts. And so it's this like this moment of the spirit world. I don't know. I think it was somebody reading a little too much into it. But it got me thinking of like, well, she's the one who sees the ghosts in the movie. Are they only revealing themselves to her for some reason? Yeah, I I do really like the looks, the looks of the ghosts in this movie. I mean, they're I when I saw this in the theater, I didn't find it frightening but i did find them super creepy super creepy like i'm gonna be thinking about that before i go to bed tonight like yeah, and, even, and even like once once the 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 fright of the ghost has died down and we've seen them a bunch the last ghosts that we see are still so deeply just distraughting because you see uh you see thomas when edith mentions to lucille that the ghost is there after thomas has died after lucille kills him and the hole that she poked in his face because i don't think we directly mentioned that thomas is the one that gets gets a face face it's, it's a knife a yeah, face knife stab knife in the face and his body is like wisping away with this like black streaks like that's, that's unlike no, it's, anything it's, i've ever it's seen the blood the blood is coming out of his right wound in his cheek yeah right and it's like unlike anything i've ever seen with ghosts in a movie where it and, it and his cheek is cracking it's almost like his body has turned to the stone and the stone is now cracking and fading away and eventually it'll be brushed away by the wind and uh it's just such a haunting display of a ghost that scene has always stuck with me especially when she like she can kind of touch him like even that's creepy yeah no del toro did that that effect of sort of the the wisps of blood sort of floating upward. He did that with the devil's backbone as mm -hmm. well with a ghost that's in that movie. And um, they did the effect by putting the person underwater and oh, having the really? die sort of floating upward off of them. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so so cool. It is. It's a beautiful effect. It's beautiful, oh, yeah. And it, it makes it very ethereal looking. It's it's striking. It's another example of like blood being or of red being used sparingly, but still fitting really well in the in the aesthetic of what's going on i mean it is very his ghosts to me the others are creepy and like nicole said like i was looking at pictures of him a minute ago and i was like mm, i shouldn't be doing that this close to bedtime um but his is the most haunting in a lot of ways yeah because it's, it's also he has more of his body parts than i was gonna say because his his is the most <laughs> still intact you can see his his eyes and stuff like that sure sure and, and we see the last ghost of the movie is we see lucille lucille is playing piano again in the home and Which i think jessica it's, chastain learned to play all those songs really yeah i mean i imagine she already knew the piano i mean oh, you know, you for know a second just, i was gonna say like that's incredibly unnecessary but i appreciate yeah. it 
Yeah. No, wow. I imagine she already could play, but she learned the actual songs. Yeah. So, so, so with all the ghosts in this, uh, is it, so first of all, David's question, are there any truly horrifying moments or is it too reliant on jump scares? Um, God, I'm so desensitized. These questions, I can't even answer them. No, I find it pretty horrifying. Horrifying, especially when you realize, you know, what's in the vats. What's in the vats? What's in the vats? And also, what they've—I think just the idea that they've—they've they've done this to multiple women, and she's keeping a collection of their hair. Like, oh, there's they're a lot serial of creepy things going they're on. They're serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. She keeps trophies. Right. Yeah. Right. So like the, the, there's things that are horrifying beyond just like the ghost popping out of walls and stuff to me in this movie. Um, and one thing I do like is that when they do pop up, they're really only jumpy a couple of times. Like a lot of the times you, you see them coming, like especially when one ghost is like popping up behind her while she's in the bath. And like you see it like darting behind her. And it's not like when I say darting, that makes it sound fast. Slowly lumbering behind her is probably more <laughs> adequate. Uh, but there's um, still moments where, like, the ghost, like, it'll show you the ghost, and the ghost will scream at her, and like, the music will go intense. Or, like, yeah, that's you're true. standing that's in a room, true. and like, suddenly the music goes like, like, right as like a ghost walks by a window. No, that's very true. That is true. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think there's horrifying stuff in it, but yeah, those jump jump scares are they're, they're a part of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I mean for, them. for me the most horrifying moment is when Jessica Chastain goes full on hinge at the end and is chasing her around oh the house. And <laughs> she's in this giant flowing Victorian dress, so her herself running around looks like a ghost, you know, sweeping through the hallways. Ah, Brett cracked the code, everybody. I know. <laughs> I know. No, no, you know, um, like pointing it out doesn't it's mean about like, as subtle as the rat at the end of uh, the departed. I know. Do you see that Kickstarter, by the way? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, the guy who wants everybody to listening needs to donate money to the man that is removing the rat from the final scenes of the departed. <laughs> and he has a very thorough breakdown of why it's going to cost him, you know, for, like three thousand dollars, whatever. But I, but I, that's pointing out the symbolism. I, I do want to say it doesn't like doesn't diminish it. I think it still is effective in its imagery. It's just like funny, like oh yeah, gr- great job, Brett. You you figured out what they were trying to tell you. But I mean, that's yeah, that's we're a film discussion podcast. Why am I trying to <laughs> see? Like, how dare Why you? are we up? picking this apart? Because yeah. that's that's what we do. Right. That's what we do. But but I I do think you're right that her. Her like complete unhinged insanity at the end of this movie is horrifying, um, almost to comedic effect at the very end when she's so yeah. hell bent killing uh, Lucille that she has to make that stupid comment twice. The uh, this ends with you and me dying thing, right? Yeah, this only ends one way: one of us dying. Yeah, like, I kill you. Only you one. Yeah, and then of course Edith gets to kill her and say, "I heard you the first time." I could have done without that. Um, is this a is this a horror movie? It kind of is, but it's a different kind of horror movie. It's a horror movie in the sense that you know Edith's novel is a ghost story. You know, this is right. a this is a movie with horror in it, and her novel is a a story with ghosts in it. But it's not intended to be a ghost story. And I don't mm-hmm. think this is intended to be a horror movie, at least not. Not in the contemporary sense. I think this is meant yeah. to be more like, you know, um, the Val Luton movies from the 40s and um, the, the, the 
films from the 30s and 40s with the more the more gothic horror, the more uh, atmospheric. He said that uh, the innocence and the uh, the haunting, the original the haunting, which is like 1960 or something, mm-hmm. uh, were inspirations. So like these haunted house movies. He also um, loved The Exorcist and The Shining. Those are two big inspirations for this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see The Shining in the way that they shoot the inside of the house. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the way they shoot the hotel. Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, it's no, it's it's creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. Definitely. I think uh, creepy. I think you bring up a really great point, Nicole, which is, you know, uh, Edith is is mocked by the male book publisher man uh for her it needs a love story yeah it needs a love story and also the you know the she tries to explain to him it's not you know it's like you said it's not a ghost story it's a story with a ghost in it and i really that's where i've always landed on this movie there's spooky things going on but there's a lot of movies where there's some spooky stuff going on and i don't consider them horror movies yeah which that that there needs to be a love story thing is like still a thing that plagues storytelling there are so many movies where it's like we need to have a i mean the reason that uh in jurassic world that bryce dallas howard and chris pratt kiss is because like well so because originally other characters were going to kiss but then there's a joke about like well oh i have a boyfriend we never mentioned them uh those characters are supposed to kiss but they're like well we s- still need a kiss in this movie so they forced one like that's still a thing that happens today of like there needs to be a love story how else will women come and see this with their boyfriends right, I, right. i'm it, saying this facetiously like- but that is also kind of how they think yeah, yeah, it was so like, like double double dipped in misogyny, right? Because it's also coming yeah. from a female author that they dare not publish in this era. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a murder mystery, and some of the characters happen to be ghosts. So mm-hmm. the one thing I want to point out, as long as we're talking about her book, I do love just a stupid scene in this movie where when Edith and Thomas first meet and he glances. Not for three seconds. Oh yeah, at the story at, at her desk, upside down, before turning to her and saying, "Well, this is quite good, isn't it?" it right. captures I, must, I must read more. Like, oh like, my god. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's not good. Uh, no, he, but he I, knew I wonder, it was hers, so thought he'd get a chance at flattery in early. Yeah, I wonder is is she any good? Like I, I want to know. Like, is does the story I, get published? I bet she is. She I think seems she is. very intelligent and very self possessed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, our last discussion topic because I just couldn't figure out how to naturally put it in the discussion. Why, why, why <laughs> do all men not do the hand on the face thing when they kiss? Why you guys are so dumb? It's from Nicole. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it certainly adds to like the Victorian charm of this movie. <laughs> All right, I admit I was slightly buzzed when I added that to the <laughs> discussion docket. Um, but this was this was right when Edith and Thomas have their first kiss, which Edith initiates. By the way, um, you know she's the one who leans in first, and then he he very gently puts his hand up to the side of her face, which is something men should do more often, not all the time. <laughs> I was gonna but say you need I, to I bring like it out I, at least for special occasions. I was gonna say I feel like I do it a healthy amount. Good, <laughs> because you should. Because it's, I can vouch that the woman feels it all the way down to her toes when you do that. So. <laughs> Just well, I'm, I'm, 
handy dandy tip for all of you out there and all all of you who kiss women be you men women non-binary what have you whoever all of you who kiss women this is something women like so just <laughs> well well hilston does it in this movie um yes. and, and i'm 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 I, I'm just going to throw out there, I have a soft spot for him. I, I really like him as an actor, uh, which is one of the reasons I really love this movie. Um, I also like feel bad for him. Did I ever tell you guys the story of when I went to go see him two no? years ago? So mm-hmm. I, I, I was like three feet, four, three or four feet away from him um, in, a, in a Q&A. And we were in the front row right next to him, and he was being really nice. He was just the nicest guy that evening. And it was for I Saw Light. And we had seen the movie prior, and then him and the him and the director came in to talk about it, and it was just painful because he was so nice to everybody, and he was taking photos. I didn't get one, and uh, and the movie blew. It was so <laughs> bad, and like and like you could tell that like any potentially good questions that people had for either of them going into this movie, they no longer wanted to ask after the movie. <laughs> uh, oh. It was a very awkward Q and A. Um, Oof. I recommend the movie, but it's not his fault. He's the only good part of it. I digress. Uh, next week, we're going to be watching an entirely different kind of movie. Um, but as we With, wrap down, out a love story. Yeah, out a love story. Uh, are there any final thoughts on you guys? Am I right that this might be a? I really do have to preface that I think it is. A, it is a classic in the Guillermo del Toro sense of look at this beautiful stuff he's doing on camera. And look at the unique storytelling, even if it's not perfect. I I believe you're certainly right about people are going to look at this decades from now for you know at the production design. They're going to look at the costuming. They're going to look at the cinematography, which is uh, Dan Lostin, Lostson, uh, who also uh, shot The Shape of Water. Um, <laughs> Silent Hill, which is not necessarily a great movie, but is... You're not convincing me on that one. (laughs) Um, So, um, oh, John John Wick Chapter 2. And 3 coming up. So, anyway, but I I think he does beautiful work. Um, I would want to shout out the, uh, the man who wrote the score, Fernando Velasquez. This is this beautiful, lush, romantic score that pairs perfectly with the movie. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's as always, well-directed. I like the story. I, it could certainly be tighter. You know, it's a little too self-indulgent in places, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people will look back on it, I think, and say this is a this is a good, solid, um, mid-level Guillermo del Toro work, which is, to me, I think will eventually be seen as like saying it's a mid-level Hitchcock. You know, it's it's still awesome. <laughs> it's just not as awesome as some of this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll agree with that, but uh, in kind of a way of. Because of that, I don't think it'll quite be a classic. I think it'll be a little gem hidden in his history that people will go. really yeah. will really enjoy. But yeah. I don't think it's going to be a movie that everybody's going to be coming to of like, oh, you haven't seen Crimson Peak? It's like, <laughs> you're going to have one friend that's like, God, he won't shut up about Crimson Peak. <laughs> weird old movie. Totally me. 
Yeah, I do yeah. think it's unlikely that anyone will be sitting around going, that's his best one. What are you talking about? No, there, no, there'll be <laughs> one guy who will like, who will not shut up about how it is his best one. And it's like, no, like his dad has the original Blu-ray, man. Like it's not digital. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the yeah, other uh, muttering in the corner going, nobody talks about Pacific Rim anymore. And they definitely yeah. should. <laughs> I wish we'd watch Pacific Rim. Definitely, definitely. No, I hear where both of you are coming from on that. And I think that, you know, uh, it's it's not even my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie, which I think says something to kind of where I land on it. But like Nicole said, I really do think that in the broad scheme of a incredibly accomplished director, this is a really fun little Easter egg in the middle of it that I think might be classic for some reasons or may, maybe might not be. But I'm really happy I got you guys to watch it. Um, I'm glad I saw it, it for sure. Oh, yeah, it's a fun movie. I mean, and, and one thing I do want to throw out there as well. Um, I've yet to buy this, but I really want to. Uh, Arrow Video, which is a video company I learned uh, in recent weeks, uh, they They're like the criterion of genre movies, like yeah, yeah, and exploitation films and stuff. Right. So I so I learned that they they put out a, a limited edition uh, special version of this Blu-ray. It's only thirty-five oh. bucks, so it's not very expensive. And not only does it include, you know the movie um but it also includes uh new audio commentary by Guillermo del toro the house is alive constructing crimson peak uh previously unseen spanish language interviews with Guillermo, uh the gothic corridor the red clay mines the limbo fog set and four featurettes exploring different aspects of adderdale hall a primer on gothic romance the light and dark of crimson peak among many, many other things, including deleted scenes, a double-sided fold-out poster, postcards and lobby card reproductions, and a limited 80-page hardbound book with new writing from the writers, an archival interview with Guillermo, and original conceptual design illustrations. And those sound like they'd be really cool looking. So that might be $35 well spent. If you are one of those people who wants to hold on to this in like 30 years and show people it, and ramble about how good you think Crimson Peak is. Might <laughs> well, be me. There you go. Oh, by the Next way, I found out Arrow are also the people who put out the extra ultra deluxe edition of Waterworld. Oh no. That <laughs> <laughs> takes it all back. Oh, that is just too bad. All righty. Is that the one actually I, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say something I shouldn't hear. I kinda wanna see it. Because they're saying it's like three hours long and it adds like an hour and a half to the movie that apparently salvages some of the worst parts of the story. All right, I'm going to throw out a rule right now. We are not doing Waterworld. No, no, no. <laughs> that apply, I'm going to throw out a rule right now that applies to, that, that's going to apply to you did this to us, which is it can't be something that we have to go buy and spend a significant like more than ten dollars oh, to yeah. obtain it not oh, yeah. be a special edition you know limited cut of three hours i am of not gonna go spend 35 bucks to get the special edition no 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 god i am what more do you did you really need okay um next week though we're gonna watch a movie that's much better than water world yes. uh, the good the bad and the ugly i assume i've never seen it but i'm really looking forward to it <laughs> <laughs> David, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me under the username Davluz, that is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter and Instagram, you can find me there. And uh, as always, on the Brokebot Mountain podcast. Very good. And what about you, Nicole? 
I take care of our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. I am on uh, Letterboxd, uh, Nicole underscore Davis. And I tweet occasionally, and it's uh, at your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. Very good. My name is Brett Stewart. Find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That is Brett with two T's and Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. I'm going to have a new podcast out that I've been working on that'll be in feeds available by the time this episode hits your feed for Movie Go Round. But I can't really give any info on it yet because we don't even have finished art. But uh, it'll be done by the time this hits your feed, which means it'll be on that Twitter again. I am Brett Stewart. We'll be back next week with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We'll see you then. Bye.